Amen. Please be seated. And uh, if you're at home, you're probably still seated. Uh, can I suggest if you've got a, uh, a Bible and a notebook, it would be really helpful uh, to drag those out. And um, so uh, just thank you to everyone that sort of uh, led into this moment this morning. Uh, it's just really good to have different people from uh, the congregation come and, and lead a portion of the service. It's really nice that uh, this is not a professional organisation. This is full of amateurs. This full of people that love Jesus and serve him, uh, even if it ends up meaning that they are YouTube stars, however reluctant uh, that may be. Uh, thank you to everyone that's made it physically, uh, sort of followed all the processes and are sitting there with an uncomfortable mask, and everyone that sort of uh, managed to log on online and um, sort of uh, decided to turn off loose swimming and come to Elin Bubush. Uh, who'd have thought we'd be competing with them uh, uh, for uh, uh, time? So uh, hopefully this works. Excellent. Uh, for those at home watching it on YouTube, these pictures are, we've tried our best to make sure that they come out, uh, but we sort of have varying success. So I'll try to explain them uh, if you can't see them. And hopefully if you're with us, you can see them quite clearly. Um, Excellent. So last Sunday, uh, after church, uh, my uh, boys were rattling around the house a little bit. So uh, I rounded them up um, and thought we would go off uh, on an adventure with our bikes. Uh, so off we went and we went to uh, a nearby park that we don't normally go to. Um, so it was all a bit of an adventure and uh, kind of eyes appealed for, for, for new things. And uh, as we went round uh, this one particular lake, uh, we spotted something that didn't fit in. You know, something that was out of the ordinary. It wasn't uh, something you would normally come across. And uh, it just drew our eyes to it as we passed it. Uh, if you're seeing the slide, you can probably guess what's coming. Uh, because as we looked a little closer to this thing uh, uh, lying on the ground, we discovered it was the fresh body of a dead pigeon. Um, and it had obviously just uh, passed away. And uh, immediately, uh, when I pointed it out to, to my boys what it is, they immediately sort of ground to a halt, got off their bikes and ran over to it. And then as they got nearer and nearer, you could see their gait slowly slow down. And they kept looking at me to expect me to say, no, no, you're not allowed to touch that. You know, there's that feeling of this is something unusual and normally I'm prohibited from going anywhere near it. Um, but I kind of, um, one thing Christianity's got about it is this utter confidence about death. You know, it's not something to fear, not something to worry about. And I want, the, I want my family to, to realise that the, the death is not something to be scared of, it's not something to be wary of. It, it, it's something to uh, uh, see as part of the wider story of our faith. So they got closer and closer, and I don't think they could believe their luck that they were allowed to actually approach this uh, uh, dead pigeon. And it was fascinating to watch them explore this mystery, this thing that they hadn't come across. And... Thank you very much. Is it cutting off my head? Yeah. yeah. And um, so, uh, usually, if you've ever approached a bird as a kid, they fly off immediately. You know, these wild things, they don't want to hang around with uh, uh, people. 
and uh, off they go. But this one, my boys noticed, just stayed there. And it looked the same as the pigeons in the air. You know, it hadn't rotted away, it was still uh, uh, healthy looking, all the feathers and sort of the eyes and everything else was intact. And yet it wasn't doing what the live birds were doing. It still had heart, still had blood, still had wings and feet, and everything about it externally and internally looked the same, and yet it was dead. It was lifeless and foreign. And you can see my boys wondering and it ticking over the reality of death. And as they were allowed to be near this dead pigeon and other parents saying, I'm not too sure, I think of all the diseases, like flying rats and all that. Um, they sort of quietly chatted to each other as they got down on their hunches and sort of uh, prodded it and moved it with their feet and, and found that it didn't respond in any way. Um, and they were sort of struck by this bird that was soft and limp. And as they prodded it, it was, it was so obviously a pigeon, but not a pigeon. And uh, you could see the sort of, uh, it just sort of ticking over in their minds. This is what happens. All life passes away. Everything dies. And then they sort of quietly went away and then we went to dodge other pedestrians and dog walkers uh, in the park. Now, inquisitiveness, isn't it, is a natural part of humanity. We, we, it's almost an inevitable thing that we get up to. From an early age, we taste things. You, you have to stop small children, keep putting things into their mouth, whatever they find, because they want to explore it, they want to know more. And uh, we prod things. Um, and if you're a teenager, you end up taking them apart. How many things I broke as a lad, inquisitively taking them apart and then being unable to put them back together. And as you get older and uh, you're allowed a sort of car license and this, that and the other, you explore and go out and, and you want to know more. And there's an inquisitiveness about humanity. And so it is inevitable. Um, it's a picture from uh, Hamlet with uh, Yorick's skull and uh, it's inevitable that this inquisitiveness that is part of the human psyche is brought to death. We look at it, wonder at it, what is going on? Is that something to fear, something to worry about? Is it inevitable? Do I have to go through it? What does it mean? Is there another side? Last week we looked at probably one of the very earliest Christian creeds out there. Um, and we, we looked at how that, uh, the, the core of Christianity is this event of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, when you boil it down to its bare essence, you have this moment of Jesus dying and raising again. And that moment is accompanied by this, by this beautiful concept of grace, that God forgives us our sins, that because of what Jesus did on the cross, that we are liberated from the uh, curse of sin. 
And it means we're saved. And it means we're saved into eternal life. And this, this early creed, this boiling down of Christianity to its bare essence, should provoke other questions. I really hope that all sorts of other questions are bubbling in your minds as you are given one set of new, uh, new facts. That suddenly someone goes, oh yes, so your Jesus' death and resurrection means you can be saved and you can look forward to eternal life. And hopefully none of us are so brain dead or passive that go, oh, that's nice and we just live like that. Hopefully all sorts of other Christians say, what on earth does that mean? I thought I'd processed what death is. And now you're saying there is more to it. And all sorts of other questions should be coming to the top of our minds. And for the Christians in the first century, that was true. They had all sorts of ideas of what this meant. And the Christians in Corinth, who seemed to be particularly imaginative, um, looked at this prospect of eternal life, and their minds just went wild with conjecture and all sorts of ideas as to what it could mean. And then there were different factions over who believed what. And they were like kids going around a dead animal instead of being uh, sort of uh, reverent and uh, you know, somewhat circumspect, going around kicking it and prodding it and throwing it into the lake. There was no restraint or reverence whatsoever. And um, they didn't seem to look for scripture for answers or to godly men around them. They didn't look to Paul's teachings to find out what they should uh, look at. Um, and so the Apostle Paul just gets really cross with them. He's like, come on, guys, with all the things you're doing, it's good to be inquisitive, but you certainly don't treat this subject with that irreverence. And um, we're not going to turn to it, but in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul talks about the Corinthians' idea of death. And he says they are misled, he, uh, he says they're senseless, and he says they are fools. So uh, uh, things were not going well in the Corinthian idea of death. However, in his second letter to uh, the Corinthians, Paul seems to have calmed down a bit. You know, he's a little bit uh, more level-headed um, and he has uh, some observations about death that have some practical implications. You know, it's not just theory, it's not just pie in the sky, but it's something that changes behaviour. If you've got a Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that, what? is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So there's some uh, mysterious language in there. Um, if you can't see, uh, there's a picture of uh, my brother uh, with an older gentleman, and it's at the uh, British Museum. Um, so when we started this in 2005, uh, one of the elders from our parent church, uh, Elam Church Crawley, um, one of the guys that really sort of pushed us and believed in us and uh, uh, encouraged us uh, was a gentleman called Mike Keepy. Um, and I've grown up under his teaching and I just want to say that I've really learned to uh, um, respect his knowledge, his patience and his thoroughness. You know, he's someone that's very serious about following Jesus and he's such an advocate for Jesus in the uh, uh, church congregation. Um, the one thing though about this guy is that he can bring any conceivable subject, whatever you are talking about, whatever topic of conversation occurs to your mind, he can bring it round to his favourite subjects uh, within a matter of moments. You could be talking about one thing and then before you know it, you're talking about something that he is an expert on. So you can be talking uh, about, uh, you could talk about Brexit or the virus or uh, homeschooling or whatever comes to your mind. And before you know it, you'll either be talking about trains, boats or archaeology. It's no getting away from it. Whatever you talk about, you will end up talking about these three things. And um, I think the Apostle Paul might have been a bit the same. Because when Paul's talking about death, he says it's a bit like tents. Do you know what Paul's job was when he wasn't preaching? He dealt in tents. He was a tent maker. And so it seems that um, it's one of those scenarios where he is sort of reaching for a metaphor and he goes, I know, I'm going to tell you about something I'm an expert on, tents. So he uses this metaphor of tense to describe life and death, mortality and immortality. Um, I don't know whether you've noticed, but our bodies are vulnerable. They are, Paul would say, temporary accommodation. Stuff that won't last. Some of you that shouldn't come a shock to, and some of you are going, what are you talking about? I'm invincible, I can leap from the highest building. Well, everyone realises at some point that they are not invincible or immortal. In fact, these bodies wear out. Put your hand up if you've ever felt the limitations of your body. Excellent, a few honest people around. Some of you still think you're some sort of superman and uh, there's going to be a rude awakening when that happens. So, um, even if we are pristine in how we look after it, your hair turns grey. 
your teeth fall out, your eyes fail, your limbs slow down, um, and your skin wrinkles. You can try all sorts of modern devices to stop this, but it is all inevitable. It is coming for you. Uh, you may be able to slow it down a little bit, but it is still a reality that you will end up in this manner. And Paul would say, every moment that you notice a new wrinkle, every moment you notice a grey hair, every moment your limbs ache, every moment uh, you're burning yourself when you're cooking, like I did uh, yesterday, um, you realise the truth of what Paul's talking about. These bodies we have are kind of vulnerable tents. They're not going to last for very long. And so every time we cry from pain, every time we wince at our own imperfection, every time we groan from an ache, I would invite you to be reminded of this scripture. To be reminded that that moment, however hard to get through, is part of a bigger picture that it is good for us to think about. Now, because of what Jesus did on that cross, we are welcomed into eternity at that point of death. When our body finally gives out, when our brain gives up, when our heart stops, when death comes, that is not the end because Jesus died for us and we are saved. That last breath doesn't lead to oblivion or perpetual punishment as we deserve. Instead, we are welcomed into a mysterious new existence, this eternal longevity. And I was going to try and present some different theories on what eternal life might look like. Uh, but uh, I got uh, very bogged down in details and um, it started getting a little too above my head. So uh, we will leave that other than to say that these mortal lives are just the tip of the iceberg with our existence. I want to read to you a passage that actually should help quite a lot as we think about death, as we think about life after death, as we think about what we can look to expect. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 21. This should be an enormous relief to some of you who get a little terrified that eternal life is just going to involve one long church service. However awesome they obviously are. <laughs> so, turn to John chapter 21. It says this, uh, verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, and the disciples, they were fishing, but they did not realise that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his arm out of garment round him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat 
towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred metres. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net to shore. It was full of fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not broken. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When Jesus raised Lazarus again, Lazarus still had this mortal body. Jesus is, um, uh, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the new one that we are all like. Jesus, after the resurrection, he has a new body that is what we are all going to have, those of us that trust in Jesus. And so when we look at Jesus' resurrected existence, it is, uh, we are given a snapshot and an insight into what eternal life can be. And I want you to notice a few things. First of all, they didn't immediately recognise him. And that occurs again and again in the stories of Jesus' resurrected body. Again and again, he is like Jesus, but different. There seems to be a continuity, but also a difference. It's as if these new bodies shed all the imperfections that they held, and we are the same, but different. I don't know what this means, whether all those people uh, whose teeth fell out young, uh, when they were young will suddenly have perfect teeth and whether we've always had sort of been follically challenged we'll have a sort of a, a, a wonderful head of hair whether those of us that are a little bit um, uh, self-conscious about our nose or our ears or something else whether that will all be panned out but there is a reassurance that your resurrected body will be similar but different and that the imperfections and troubles that you knew in mortal existence pass away and so those of us that are troubled by uh, uh, an aspect of our being uh, can be reassured that there will be a perfection there but I want also to encourage you, do you notice what else Jesus is up to? He's on planet Earth. He's sitting around with his mates. He can talk to them. He can cook food. He relates to them and is uh, uh, aware that they need breakfast. He is aware that they need fellowship. And there is a continuity there too. It's as if this eternal existence will be like now, but a lot better. When Jesus gives us a picture for his resurrected body, we find this reassurance that it's not going to be a perpetual church service, especially not in Corona times, where we all have to sit two metres apart and have masks on. Imagine doing that for eternity. 
but there is this reassurance that eternal life will have this similarity with now, just without all the horrible bits that sour it, that make it horrible. It seems that, the, and Paul says it, doesn't he, in, in the passage we read, that we will move into life. You think what you know now is life, but it can't shine a torch to what you look forward to. You think this is as good as it gets, and Paul says, no, no, what you are looking forward to is true life. You think, you know, you might as well uh, settle on this earth, and Paul says, no, wait, look forward to the future. Post-death, you are going to have this perfect existence, and it is worth living for. It is worth getting excited about. It is worth wanting and longing for. We are not given a whole lot of detail. I would certainly love to be a little bit more specific on a Sunday morning, but it is enough, Paul says, to smile at death, to even look forward to death. Not because uh, um, uh, death is uh, just a way to uh, uh, avoid paying your bills or escape responsibility or uh, something like that, but to look forward to this perfect existence. <coughs> this is a uh, passage from Romans chapter 8 and it says the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and as we explore this promise of eternal life these resurrected bodies the worry and fear of death should recede as you grow older in your faith your fear of death should leech out of you as the reality comes near. If you are old or terminally sick, there should be a lightness of heart because Jesus has gone before us. He's shown us that for those that love him, there is a continuity and heightened joy. It's going to be like this life, but better. There's going to be a pleasure that you have not known yet. When we, and this is part of Paul's argument, when we uh, confess Jesus as Lord, the Holy Spirit comes in, the third person of the Trinity comes to live within us. This, the Spirit of God inhabits our bodies. And over time as Christians, we should be more familiar with him. He should become more and more of a friend, more and more of a counsellor, more and more of a helper. It will be someone that we lean on in increasing measure as time gets rough. And we should find over time that he's the one that inspires happiness. He's the one that brings gifts so that we can serve. So that uh, we are able to help those around us, especially in the church fellowship. And he helps us abandon the thoughts and actions and habits that are destructive. And he leads us into light and goodness and truth. 
And this is a reality that many Christians today sort of uh, speak up about and can agree that uh, though the uh, increase in relationship isn't uh, a steady uh, incline, that you know what, the Holy Spirit is someone that they love and enjoy and relish. As our relationship with the Holy Spirit improves, as our awareness of him increases, we should remember what Paul says. Paul says the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of what's to come. If you're going, well, I confess Jesus as Lord, you know, I believe uh, in God's grace, but how can I be sure that this leads to this eternal life? And Paul says, you just need to look inwards. Look at the Holy Spirit in your heart. If you've ever known fellowship with the Holy Spirit through uh, um, sort of a, uh, an emotional connection, through speaking in tongues, through uh, moments of service in the church, if you've ever known the Holy Spirit take hold of you, then you can use that as a guarantee, as a, uh, a, a guarantee that eternal life is coming that your resurrected body awaits you. It is not just conjecture and hope, but you have something to prove that it is coming. And so whenever we smile in worship, and uh, we may not be able to sing these days, uh, but you can smile as Ting plays and lift your hands, as we speak in tongues, sort of under our breath in a meeting or at home a bit more loudly, as we uh, enjoy sin being uh, less of an obstacle in our lives, as we sort of pursue that holiness, we can be reminded that a time is coming where we will enjoy a fellowship with the Holy Spirit in perfection, where these bodies that let us down so often will be replaced by something beautiful and perfect and everlasting. This is the last slide. If you can't see it at home, it says, uh, walk by faith, not by sight. And that's a reference to uh, 2 Corinthians 5 that we've already looked at. So we have this Holy Spirit that is a proof of what is to come. And secondly, while we're in these tents, these uh, temporary accommodations, we are reminded we don't get to see Jesus yet. He lives in the pages and he, uh, his spirit lives in our hearts and uh, artists have created innumerable uh, pictures of him, but we haven't seen him. And we need to live with the uh, recognition uh, that our belief will be ultimately shown to be the only reality worth living for. Your belief, your faith, is the only thing that will continue. Anything else you've invested time and effort in, that will fade away. Everyone who lives for what they can taste, for what they can see, for what they can touch, you are investing in a doomed kingdom. If your time and effort and money and strength is poured into stuff 
but you can taste and see and touch, you are going to see an end to that. It's not worth investing in. There is no future in it. But we, who believe in our hearts, who value things that you can't see, like truth and goodness, we who practice kindness and love, I admit, you'll see in patchy satisfaction now, you know, like sometimes you're nice to Christians and they sort of appreciate it, sometimes uh, uh, you are good um, and it doesn't come back to bite you, uh, but our satisfaction for loving the things that we can't see is patchy now. But a future's coming where it will be proved right that the living for others, this living by faith rather than by what I can see and touch, it will come back to pay dividends. And so today, hopefully, we don't, be we don't behave in a way where we explore with what we can get. You know, how much can I hoard? How much can I gather? How much can I see, touch, feel? How much can I experience? I just want it all and I want to gather in. Instead, we live to give away because we know that wealth, we know that fame, we know that all the things that other people go to that uh, you can see and touch and taste these things have no future, and so we let them go. And so we live to please who constantly? Paul says we live to please Jesus, because we live by faith, not by sight. We live with an understanding that this reality now is limited, that it won't last for very long, that it really is not worth your time building a kingdom on earth. It is really not worth your time building a little uh, empire for yourself in the here and now because it passes away. And that changes how we live. And it changes what we value. And it changes what we chase after. And it changes how people perceive us. Because they realise that we value different things. And thirdly and finally, Paul rather uncomfortably talks about judgment. This calling to account, this judgment seat of Christ is the sunset to this life. It is the sunset to this kingdom. It is the sunset to a temporary existence that we're kind of making the best of, but is really not worth all that. It is the start of this new sunrise, of this new existence, of this heavenly, eternal life. If we put our faith in Christ, we are saved by grace. At this summoning, at this judgment, at this sentencing, uh, we can come with a degree of freeness because we know we're not going to be crucified by this guy because um, our deeds aren't being held accountable to us. But the thing is, Paul still says that we will all face judgment. So what does he mean? 
Well, it seems, and it occurs again and again in his writings, that there is an expectation that even though we are saved by grace, there is a moment that even Christians come before God and have to answer for their actions. That there is a moment when our life is spread out and Christ makes a judgment call on how we've lived. There will be those in that situation who will be saved as if by the skin of their teeth. You know, they've trusted in Jesus, but their life says very little of that. They've chased after fame and wealth and pleasure. They've chased after immorality. They've chased after uh, sort of greed and selfishness and gossip and uh, chased after all sorts of things that they can touch and taste and smell but have no part in God's kingdom. But there will be those of us who are saved and uh, we will be saved and we will, um, it's not going to be an actual swagger but there will almost be a spiritual swagger going into heaven because we've lived our whole lives waiting for that moment that everything else has faded away into obscurity in our lives because we are so occupied with eternal life. And when we come into heaven and Jesus looks at our deeds and he'll be like, you have lived a life full of faith. You have not walked by, well, what works? What gives me pleasure? What can I get out of stuff? But you have lived by faith. You have lived by this perpetual realisation that uh, what you can see now has no eternal significance and you have been generous and kind and you have given away even more than you can afford in every possible sense and there will be a welcome in heaven there will be a reward in heaven there will be a claim in heaven and that's what Paul is saying here that place awaits us. We think this 80 odd years on the earth is all we've got, that we have to grab and covet and bring in and make sure we get our portion. But Paul says no, live by faith not by sight, live with a expectation of eternal life and in the long run you will prosper more than you ever imagined. And that is a challenge that we all need to face up to. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wisdom from Paul. God, we thank you for this correction to how we see life. Lord God, I pray that we would take in Paul's wisdom and that we would see these bodies and this existence as temporary, as something that is only passing by. That, Lord God, that we would be good at living by faith and not by sight. That we would be good at living for eternal truths rather than temporary pleasures. Lord God, we pray that as we take on that mindset, that we would become more like Jesus, more of a blessing to this earth than the earth deserves. And uh, Lord God, that we would be able to look forward to eternal life with an excitement and pleasure that will not be disappointed.
God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.